Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here, the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. It is a fantastic day. It is Thursday. We have made it through our first week on the new schedule. It is just after 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Mountain Time, and I won't do like the whole around uh, the world in time zones uh, shtick because ten uh, when I've done that when I guest host for Mark Stein it's a big thing he likes to do it takes like the first 15 minutes of the show to go from you know all the way up to Kiritamati or whatever where I think it is no I'm not going to do it I'm not going to get suckered into telling you the time everywhere around the world but what I will tell you is that it is COVID time. Yesterday, we heard from Teresa Tam that we are all to get our masks ready. So take that like dusty box that's at the back of the cupboard in your bathroom, get it out, uh, blow the, actually, no, you can't blow the dust off because then you're just spreading COVID and dust mites everywhere. You've got to wipe it off with a hypoallergenic alcohol swab. I, do those exist? I'm just kind of making stuff up now, which is exactly what our public health officials do. And then you've got to open the mask and you've got to put on one you've got to put on one mask for every booster you've gotten actually that's how it works so if you're up to your uh, seventh booster i'm sorry to say that is seven masks but you can mix and match a little bit you can do like two n95s and five regulars you can do one cloth uh, four paper and two n95s you can have some fun with it it's all about getting into the rotation variety is the spice of life that's why we have so many variants but it is of course uh, back to school time which means kids are going to do what kids do, which means in addition to uh, making noise and spilling food and getting sticky, which are all part of the charm, I'm told, they will also share COVID and germs and bacteria and viruses because that is what kids do. They run around unconstrained by the naysaying of the Nilly Kaplan Mirths of the world. And kids get sick. This is the one thing that we can always say has been with us since the dawn of time and will be with us until the end of it is that kids are going to get sick. So I saw this tweet the other, uh, not the other day, it was like 10 minutes ago. What am I doing? I, the passage of time is a subjective thing in this day and age. I saw this tweet earlier and I had to share it with you. This is from a mother by the name of Tracy Valcourt. I, I don't know her. She's got a PhD in humanities and she is a concerned mother. And I, I don't begrudge anyone who is concerned about their children, but she's lamenting that two weeks into school, her kid is COVID positive despite being the lone mask wearer in class. The mom writes, I'm so angry. I take every precaution possible, but the exchange for her education is her health. Second infection. She had the tiniest bit of congestion and I tested her. Now, then we go to this other tweet. I won't go through all the tweets, but there's another tweet here uh, in which she writes that, uh, where is it here? I, I've lost uh, the one that I was going to. Oh, yes. Thanks to the father who tweeted about testing his kid with the tiniest amount of congestion. It's because of him that I tested my daughter. She is not even blowing her nose, just sounds a bit stuffy when she talks. Imagine how many kids are attending school with similar systems. And then Tracy writes that she and her son tested negative. So here we have, I think, a bit of a question that I would ask, that I would hope any sensible person would ask, which is that if these symptoms, if the crisis of COVID is limited to a tiniest bit of congestion, 
so tiny you don't even need to blow your nose, so tiny that the only thing you experience is that it sounds a little bit stuffy when you talk, which is basically my resting position nine times out of ten, is that I sound stuffy or nasally when I talk without even having the excuse of being sick. That is all... <laughs> Again, that is all it takes to get her so angry at the irresponsibility that has allowed COVID to proliferate. Uh, pl proliferate. I'm like doing my own portmanteaus here. Prolifer proliferate in school. See, maybe I've got the uh, vocabulary variant where I failed to be able to get a word out. But this is the level of craziness that we're dealing with here from the people that believe we should be masked up until the end of time, from the people who believe that getting the sniffles, in this case, not even the sniffles, it's just like it's the piffles, really is a crisis that warrants some sort of state intervention. These are people that go well beyond what COVID-0 folks are all about. These are people that will never be satisfied until we all live like it's April 2020 until our dying days. That is not what I wanted to talk about today, but that is, I, I guess, the one upside of the COVID discussions now is that those people are the only ones calling for a return of masks and restrictions. These people are the only ones that are pushing for that life. So even the sensible moderates of which I think there are more now than historically there have been are saying, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. I'd rather just go and live my life. Now uh, it's hard to live your life completely normally in the political era when the smallest things become blown up into the big things. I shared with you earlier this week that conservative leader Pierre Polyev had a little bit of an opportunity at the microphone, so to speak, on a WestJet flight, taking over the PA system to share this. Hello, everyone. This is Pierre Polyev. Happy to join you for a wonderful WestJet flight back to my hometown of Calgary. Who's ready for a home you can afford? Who's ready for some common sense? Who's ready to give a big thank you to the WestJet pilots and crew? This is your captain warning. A little bit of turbulence, but it will only last about two years. At which time we'll have a totally new crew and pilot in charge of the plane. We'll pierce through the storm safely land in our home, the country we know and love, your home, my home, our home, let's bring it home. So I didn't hear anyone booing there. And admittedly on airplanes now, uh, just not having to hear the safety demonstration in both official languages is a nice departure from the norm. So any presentation, if someone wanted to get up there and give a recipe for cornbread, it would be more interesting than the usual monotony of airplane announcements. But Pierre Polyev spoke. It had been arranged with WestJet ahead of time. The cabin crew ultimately said, yeah, that's fine. They let him speak. And the plane was overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, filled with people who had been at the Conservative Convention in Quebec City. That was a flight that WestJet doesn't normally offer from Quebec City to uh, where, whereabouts, Calgary, without having to connect in Toronto or Montreal or something like that. They do this, and Quebec City uh, passengers to Calgary get to hear from Pierre Polyev. If you didn't like it, you just shrugged your shoulders and went back to your stale pretzels. If you did like it, you could cheer and go along with the whole bring it home message. But no one was harmed by this, and I'd say everyone or almost everyone was probably quite delighted. Now, that should have been the end of the story. 
But it wasn't, because that would just be too easy. No. First, we had, as we discussed Monday, a wave of nasty activist responses saying, I'm never flying WestJet again, like Jan Arden, who you may remember from, well, actually, you probably don't remember her at all. But Jan Arden, the uh, Canadian singer-songwriter, had said that she is never going to fly WestJet again. She's never going to do business with WestJet ever again. It's so ridiculously disappointing. She might have even said they were being insensitive. And if you're one of the four people who got that joke, it means that you've been listening to too much crappy Canadian CanCon music. But that was Jan Arden. Uh, Jan Arden depriving WestJet of the privilege of her business. Uh, but, you know, the funny thing is I actually have as many hits as Jan Arden does in the last 10 years, which is to say zero. Uh, and also I, I pick on Jan Arden because, you know, most of the people that were responding were actually just as, as unhinged as she was on that. And nevertheless, that should have been the end of it. Everyone shrugs their shoulders and moves on. But then WestJet's union for its flight attendants got involved. This is QP Local 4070, which put out a statement on Twitter denouncing the use of the WestJet flight PA system by opposition leader Pierre Polyev. The statement says that uh, the work rules prohibit anyone who's not a part of the operating crew from using it. The plane's cabin crew should never have to put a political stance in place. They showed bad judgment, but moreover, they want an apology from Pierre Polyev, which he has so far not given, and from WestJet, which WestJet has so far not given. Now, WestJet's statement, uh, or president, did put out a statement saying they'll take a look at their policies on this in the future, but give me a break. This is the least story-ish of all the non-stories we've had coming out of the Conservative Convention. So why am I talking about it? Well, I'd love to be talking about, you know, crazed COVID zero fanaticism for the whole show, to be honest, or Canadian energy policy, like we'll be discussing in a few moments' time with Jarrett Coles. But the reason I'm talking about this is because the media has decided to make this like the pivotal moment in Pierre Polyev's premiership. Uh, this is one tweet from uh, someone who, well, from CTV, saying that CTV, again, a big you know media company in Canada, is looking to speak with non-delegates aboard the WestJet flight from Quebec City to Calgary that saw Pierre Polyev speak on the PA system. If you were there, you're to email that reporter, uh, Tyson Fedor or Fedor. Uh, that is so if you were a non-delegate non on that flight, CTV wants to talk to you. The fact that in the four days since this flight has taken place, I've not seen a single complaint from anyone who was actually on that flight, that tells me something very important here, which is that no one cares. He spoke, even if someone on the flight didn't really like it, they would just move on. For example, I was on Monday or on Sunday when I was coming back from the conservative convention, I was at the airport and I was uh, seeing Jagmeet Singh. Jagmeet Singh was, was walking by and I saw him and I said, oh, it's Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader. I didn't feel offended by his presence. Had he gotten up and spoke to people in the terminal, I would have just sort of shrugged. I would have wondered why. I would have wondered if anyone had invited him. But uh, in that particular case, I would have just shrugged my shoulders and moved on. It wouldn't have offended me because it's just like, oh, I saw someone in the universe that I don't normally see in the universe. In this particular case, it was a flight 
full of conservatives. It was a home field advantage. And that was not the airline taking a political position, because I have no doubt that if Justin Trudeau were there and he wanted to do one of his blackface minstrel shows to delegates from the Liberal Convention, he would have been able to. He would have had the opportunity if uh, he were speaking to a friendly crowd, especially when the airline had just allowed him to do whatever it was that he wanted to do. That is basically what's happened here. This is uh, an example of corporations being uh, forced into the cancel culture mill mill by association, uh, not even for making a political statement, just for not being anti-conservative. That's what the activists want. They don't want WestJet to simply be politically neutral. They want them to be anti-conservative. They want them to resist and eschew association with conservatives. And this is why you have so many organizations that devote their effort to trying to boycott advertisers of conservative or conservative adjacent media. You see it in the U.S. in particular with, uh, for example, people trying to boycott Fox uh, News advertisers or Breitbart advertisers or Daily Wire advertisers. And it just becomes very tired and very tiresome. We have a media in this country that should be holding the government to account, but focuses instead on not even holding the opposition to account, like holding the airline on which the opposition member, uh, the opposition leader flew one day to account. And I don't even know if Polyev is a WestJet guy. For all I know, he was just taking that flight because they offered it and he thought it would be a nice thing to do. Like it wasn't this, because when I first saw it, I thought it was this authentic, organic moment, which it wasn't. If this had been cleared in advance with WestJet, it means that someone in Polyev's office decided this was something they wanted to do. Now, obviously, that gets into that whole sort of rote, is this just politics where everything's theatrical and everything's prearranged? And that's a legitimate enough discussion if you want to have it. But this is not a problem with WestJet. In fact, it's only a problem with a media that just does not get that no one cares about stuff like this. So uh, with that being uh, said, I hope to never have to talk about this again. Although who knows, maybe maybe I'm, you know, flying on Air Canada in a couple of weeks. So maybe I'll just get up there and do my own show and then everyone can denounce Air Canada. That'll get, then Jan Arden will have nowhere to fly because she'll have to like boycott WestJet. She'll have to boycott Air Canada. She'll be like stuck with Lufthansa or something and just has to go like, you know, Toronto to Frankfurt and then Frankfurt to Calgary just because everyone else has been such a scary, scary, evil, meanie conservative. But uh, the things that really matter, speaking of Western Canada, are the health and wellness of Canada's oil and gas sector. Yesterday, we spoke about how energy efficiency regulations are driving up the cost of housing. Today, we have a story that I found kind of interesting from Germany, where uh, Volkswagen has laid off a significant number of its electric vehicle manufacturing employees because demand in electric vehicles has dropped thanks to Germany dropping subsidies of them, which makes me wonder, well, I've not, I didn't have to wonder, I already sort of knew that electric vehicle production is an absolute racket. It's only viable as long as it is being subsidized. And you look in a Canadian context and see the billions of dollars that the Liberal government and Ontario PC government, I should also say, have put into electric vehicle manufacturing here, which will only have a market and a consumer base when electric vehicle purchases are being subsidized. So this may not even be as magically transformative to the labor force as we're being told to justify this money. 
And this is adjacent to a discussion I wanted to have on this show about a new grassroots group that's formed called Energy United, which has at its core set out to tell the story of Canada's energy sector. And this is a, a story that very much needs to be told because of how, mis how much misinformation there is about it, certainly in much of the legacy media's coverage. Uh, joining me from Energy United is the campaign manager, Jarrett Coles. Jarrett, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. So I gave like the one sentence summary, but I'll let you in your words explain what Energy United is. Yeah, so we're a grassroots advocacy organization with a mission to promote practical environmental and energy policy in Canada. You know, we're not just a drill baby drill organization or an anti-environmental or uh, just straight up energy advocacy organization. We believe that we just need to have much more practical policy around energy and environmental policies, especially how we develop our natural resource and utilize our land. And unfortunately, that story is just not being told. Um, you see a lot of the vocal minority pushing the policies these days that are really ideologically driven and they're holding back our economy and they're hurting Canadians. And we felt at Energy United that that story just wasn't out there enough and the impacts to Canadians on affordability, on reliability, just wasn't being examined or discussed. And, you know, there are always trade-offs to everything. And, you know, it's good to have important environmental and strong environmental ambitions, but, you know, we still have to have rational discussions about the trade-offs. I know you've particularly weighed in on these electricity regulations, which there's been some pushback on, uh, notably from Alberta. Premier Daniel Smith's government has been sounding the alarm about this, but not as much from other provinces uh, to the same degree. And I, I think they should be. Uh, why is this one you've decided to seize? Uh, well, you know, just like any good campaign, it's really top of mind. The federal government just released their draft regulations last month in August 2023. They're currently in a 75-day consultation period, um, asking Canadians what they think about these electricity regulations. And in our opinion, just the way that they're proposed and the aggressive timelines and then the way the mandates are structured, they could have serious impacts to our grid's reliability and to the impacts on affordability with Canadians. So that's one thing. I mean, energy is essential. We all need energy to just do our daily lives. I think a lot of us in Canada have taken it for granted. Um, and electricity is going to be essential as we move forward, as things continue to electrify. But getting rid of natural gas, which is one of the most sustainable and affordable, reliable forms of electricity, we think is a very serious error in judgment that will hurt our ability to grow our economy, create jobs, and just maintain reliable and affordable power. I, I mentioned in the lead into this, the electric vehicle uh, thing, but what I find notable about that is that there you have government policies and subsidies that are trying to manufacture a demand. And, and as a result, then you have justification for all of these additional subsidies to you know ramp up production to meet that demand. With oil and gas, you have an existing demand in the world, and it's actually government regulations that are blocking producers from meeting that demand. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not I didn't major in economics. I'm not an economist by trade. But, you know, it, to me, restricting the supply of something that is inelastic, that just has this demand just doesn't seem like it's going to reduce demand for it. It's just going to, you know, it's going to increase costs. It's going to reduce energy security if we're relying on other uh, countries to import it. So it's just one of those situations where it doesn't make a lot of sense for us. It, it's not really a common sense solution. If you look at the campaign that we're running, we mentioned that the federal government did a forced phase out of coal-fired electricity. Um, a lot of those provinces switched to natural gas because it's a cleaner burning fuel, it's more sustainable, and they reduced their emissions. 
in the United States, for instance, the largest emissions reductions they've had are from switching from coal to natural gas. Now, as they're still going through that 2030 coal phase out, the government's moved the goalposts on these provinces again, saying that you can't have any new natural gas commissioned after 2025 unless it has carbon capture and storage. But they've even admitted that that technology isn't available yet. So we're really playing like a, a hope and wait game that could have serious impacts on Canadians. You know, I think one of the most uh, telling examples of this problem was Germany coming hat in hand, basically saying we, we need natural gas. We need to replace uh, we, we need LNG. We need this. And Canada looking and saying, all right, well, we've now been already so far behind. We couldn't just flip a switch and meet that demand. And uh, the problem that I have with this debate and this discussion is that oftentimes it's years too late when we realize that we've missed an opportunity, that we failed by not investing in the infrastructure ahead of time. And I guess the question I would ask is, is it too late? Has that ship already sailed? I don't think it's too late at all. And I don't think that ship has sailed. I have the, a similar frustration with you when they say, you know, we're years too late. And then you see critics of uh, our ability to export our products or critics of the industry say, you know, it doesn't make sense economically. But when they're talking about the economics of the project, they never talk about the regulatory burden that is increasing costs far beyond what they should be in this country relative to other jurisdictions like the United States. Like the United States can build an LNG train facility in way less time than we can in Canada. Our first one was announced right around the same time that the United States started building LNG facilities, LNG Canada out in Kitimat. That still is under construction. And now the United States is the largest exporter in the world of LNG. And you see other countries signing long-term agreements well past 2050 to maintain natural gas supplies, where in Canada, we have a very singular focused approach on just renewables or nothing. And it's really yeah. more of an all of the above situation that we need with the growing demand for energy. Yeah. And, and just on that demand, I mean, you know, the one thing that a lot of the activists and the governments that seem to be beholden to activists miss is that you don't stop demand by restricting supply. And so basically it means the question is who's going to fill that void and who's going to supply that demand. And as your organization has pointed out, it's you know almost always these dictatorial regimes that aren't as beholden to these environmental pet causes, Saudi Arabia, China, uh, you know, Iran to some parts of the world and, and Russia. Yeah, Venezuela is still up there, Qatar. Qatar is like one of the biggest producers of LNG. Of the top 10 oil producers in the world, like United States, Canada, I mean, Norway are up there as like democratic and free countries. Who, who do you want to trust to actually move forward to create a more sustainable product that we actually essentially need? I mean, you know, we can't just say that no oil and gas is good because we're going to need that product. And if we import it, who do you trust to actually make sure that that's going to be doing environmental sustainability? If you look at someone like Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco couldn't even be listed on the New York Stock Exchange because they wouldn't provide the transparency necessary to, to earn that listing. So... Hmm. So what is it that you would like to see from, I mean, let's start with the federal government and then we can talk about provinces, but from the federal government, what would be your top priorities for them on this? I think it's, uh, you know, they're just moving too far too fast on, on too many things. I know there's been a lot of talk lately about the carbon tax and the impacts of Canadians on that. But if you really look at everything that they've done uh, with respect, there's the carbon tax, there's a clean fuel regulation. There's a methane reduction targets, there's the emissions cap, there's the Sustainable Jobs Act, there's C69, the Impact Assessment Act, there's the C48, no more tankers. There's also just this kind of lukewarm support for the industry, which 
turns away investors and people that want to make long-term capital commitments. So really it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you got to wait and let these policies kind of see and how they're working before you add additional layers of regulation that are just going to hurt investment and competitiveness and drive it elsewhere. And it's just going to end up hurting Canada in the long run. So I think it's kind of a, just a, a slow down, let these policies take effect and, and let companies catch up and, and show, um, I would say progress in, in what they're doing before you hit them with another policy, especially the, the stick policies that Canada has been using relative to the incentive based policies, the carrots in the United States. To look at the provincial level, one of the problems we have just as a matter of geography is that it's the coastal provinces that have been often the most resistant to the oil and gas sector, BC on the west and uh, Quebec on the east. So what is it you need to see from the provincial landscape to fix this or at least work towards a, a better model? I mean, if you ever look at uh, that's like a really good question. I think you see the premiers getting on side a lot more with certain interprovincial trade issues. I know energy has just become more of a it's almost like a religious sort of thing now where it's just it's a it's a very moral argument and less of an economic argument. Um, mm -hmm. So I think just kind of understanding those rational and fact based arguments, understanding that, you know, there are going to be impacts on affordability. I mean, a lot of what I see uh, today is people talking about the 20 to 25 years in the future and not focusing on the issues today and what we can do to manage those issues today. So even focusing on more so in the present and how we can work on those policies to work on affordability today and less on like we're going to be doing this by 2050. When who knows what's going to be happening within the next five to 10 years. I mean, the last five years shows that we live in a pretty volatile time. So I think it's just kind of that slow down, the cooperation. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those situations with energy where, you know, good politics often collides with good policy. Um, so I think it's just that leadership where we have to put forward that good policy, even if it's not great politics. Jarrett Coles from Energy United. You can check them out at energyunited.ca. Jarrett, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate it, Andrew. Anytime. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'd uh, love to have you back on this. This is an issue that's near and dear to my heart and that of uh, many of those listening. So thank you for that, Jarrett. Uh, this has been a, a bit of a weird week. We've started a new schedule and I guess to some extent a, a new format on this show, but also we had in the weekend, uh, much of our team in Quebec City covering the Conservative Convention. So uh, we've been bringing you since then all of the uh, stories that matters, like uh, I believe uh, Pierre Polyev actually might have had an extra bag of pretzels on his WestJet flight. Uh, WestJet was just pandering to that uh, evil, scary conservative. The flight attendant walked by. They said, uh, you, sir, look like uh, a conservative leader we want to give some extra pretzels to. Uh, and they might have even given him like a third ice cube in his water cup, which if you've uh, traveled uh, in commercial air in Canada, you know is like unheard of. You, uh, The cup just barely has any room for anything. But I uh, know we've been covering the real stuff, the uh, policy de uh, declarations and resolutions, and also uh, some of our conversations with people at the convention about the state of the Conservative Party and what they want to see moving forward. One of those that we sat down with was Jamil Giovanni, who I've known in non-political context more so because he was the president of the Canada Strong and Free Network. He also was a, a former colleague in broadcasting, and I've appeared on stage with him before. We've always had a, a great relationship, and it was uh, interesting to sit down with him now that he's wearing a different hat. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are at the conservative convention where more than 2,500, I think pushing 3,000 according to some numbers of conservative members Members and activists from around the country are descending. And the kickoff was very lively on Thursday night. I'll play what clip from one of the speakers here, Jamil Giovanni. We had a deal in this country for a long time, didn't we? You remember that? Feels like a long time ago. Wasn't that long ago? It was a deal that you work hard, you follow the laws, you get a good house in a good, safe neighborhood. You make a good living for your family and you have a great life. But that deal, like many other things, under the Trudeau government is now broken. We have 35-year-olds like me, people I could have went to high school with, living in their parents' basements because the cost of housing, of mortgage payments, rent payments, down payments has literally doubled under Trudeau's watch. It now takes around 25 years to save for a down payment on a house in Toronto. And I'm not too young to remember there was a time where in 25 years you could be expected to pay off your mortgage. That's not the case in Canada anymore. And all the Liberals have to offer when we ask them, how are we going to fix this, are excuses and promises that they're going to think about it. Imagine that, Liberals thinking, I mean, how much confidence can we have in that, right? But they are not coming up with concrete actions. And they're failing not just young people, they're also failing seniors. When I knock on doors in Clarington, in Oshawa, in Scugog, I meet many seniors, many of whom cannot afford to live in the house they've been in for years. They're struggling in this crisis as well, some of them even being evicted from their homes because of the neglect of our government. The time for excuses and empty liberal promises is over. It's time for conservative solutions. Yes. Yes. No better kind of solution is there. That clip has been making the rounds, a very poignant message that I think would resonate with people uh, all across this country, whether they're political or not. Uh, welcome, Jamil. It's good to talk to yeah. you now. I've, I've had you on the show before, and this is a bit of a different uh, flavor now because you are a, a conservative candidate yes. in Durham. So Some things have changed recently. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, what were you getting at in that message? Well, you know, the phrase we hear a lot right now is that, you know, Canada's broken, the system is broken, things aren't working. And I think, as you said, that's not a partisan message. That's not a message that only resonates with people who call themselves conservatives. It is a message that people across the country, but especially my age and younger, really feel right now, right? And uh, so when we talk about the deal no longer being in place, it's the sense that a lot of people came to Canada from all over the world. My grandpa came from Scotland. My dad came from Kenya. And the idea was that you work hard and you give your kids a better life. And right now, I don't think people see Canada as a place where your kids are necessarily getting a better life. You have, and you, you've talked about this at great length in the past, a, a tremendous life story. You kind of beat the socioeconomic odds and, and went to a Yale and you know became a lawyer and have been very successful and you're now standing for parliament. Do you think under the current climate, you would have been able to replicate that if you were 10 years younger? It's a great question because I struggled in school with a lot of the basics you need to be successful. You need to be able to read, you need to be able to write, you need to be able to think and articulate yourself. 
And unfortunately, I think the school system is kind of getting further away from that, not closer. So I do wonder, you know, if, if the school system saw a kid like me, would I be encouraged to actually work hard and improve my skills and become the best version of myself? Or would people be saying, well, you know what, Jamil, uh, the reason you're not doing well in school is because of systemic racism. So just don't even mm. bother to try. So I do think about that a lot. You know, what is the message we're sending to kids struggling like me? Um, you know, I will say that I think that there is still reason to be hopeful. I really do. I mean, I wouldn't have, you know, put my name on a ballot if I didn't think that. But I do worry a lot about kids who, you know, feel like a better life isn't necessarily guaranteed for them and wonder, you know, does the country care about them anymore? Are they a priority? Is there going to be any change with them in mind? Right. Because mm -hmm. it does feel like, at least under the current government, people who are struggling are being asked to keep their mouths shut. And we're being asked to celebrate an economy that's just not working for the majority of people. Going back a, a few years at the beginning of COVID in particular, I, I think it was easy for people on the right to feel like they had just lost. I mean, big government was uh, getting out of control and, and even nominally conservative governments were not exactly going down the road that people would have hoped. You, you fast forward now, uh, you're here as a candidate. You've got Pierre Polyev, who's tremendously popular with conservatives, Danielle Smith in Alberta, very similar story. And I know you and uh, she, like me, were all kind of in radio ar around the same time. I was wondering what your sense is overall of, of the conservative movement, because you're jumping into this role, having been president of an organization that was focused on building and, and fostering the movement side rather than the party side. Yeah, it's a great question, because a few years ago, I think it did feel like the middle class, the working class in this country was being you know, forgotten and being marginalized. Yeah. Policies, you know, we used to say being made for the Zoom class, the laptop class. Right. Yeah. Um, policies are being made that just didn't have the majority of people in mind. And I do think what we're seeing right now is that conservatives have filled that void. It's a remarkable thing. I talked to some of my friends in other countries in the UK and the US, and they say, wow, you guys are the ones talking about housing. You guys are the ones talking about, you know, the working class, the middle class. I think in other countries, conservative parties have tried this, but I don't think it has been as organic and as natural as we've seen with Pierre Polyev as our leader, because the COVID years left a massive hole, right? I mean, people were like, well, who's speaking for the majority of people? We, we're not allowed to talk. Big tech is censoring us. We're not getting our voices out there. And then you see a political party kind of turn into that vehicle. And it's a beautiful thing. And one of the things I always say to people is that when I knock on doors, when I talk to people, people who never vote, people who've never voted conservative or maybe never even shown up on election day ever in their lives, are actually excited because they think we're offering something that's a real alternative. And people want change, man. They're just not happy. And it's not hard to understand why. You know, you can only ignore the majority of people for so long before they say, hey, wait a minute. Like, I shouldn't have to be, you know, doing well in this society for my voice to be heard, for me to count. I know that you're running in Durham, which was the, the riding vacated by Aaron O'Toole, the, the former conservative leader. And I know he's been very kind about you and, and your candidacy, which is good. But there were a lot of there was a lot of bad taste. in I think the party's mouth about just how the last campaign went. And I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are uh, moving forward. I know you're focused on Durham and not the, the national campaign, but but why this one's going to be different for the conservatives, why they can actually pull it together and pull out a win this time. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of what you're seeing uh, with us right now is uh, two things. Number one, there's a confidence that I love mm -hmm. to see. There's a certain sense of being conservative, unapologetic about being conservative, a real belief that we have ideas that can help people. And I think that that's something that has not always been there. And I'm very happy to see it right now. Um, so I think that's a major difference. The other major difference is that I frankly think that the political left, the Liberal Party, the NDP, They've overplayed their hand. They they want so much control over what people say and what people do. They want to have influence in big corporations and big business and universities and media. They're so much 
kind of ingrained in power everywhere that I think enough people are realizing we need to balance things out. You might not think the conservatives are perfect and no one is, mm -hmm. but certainly we need balance. And right now, if you look at the institutions across Canada, there's not a lot of balance. There's one way of looking at so many issues. And if you do not fit in those parameters, you're made to feel like you could lose your whole livelihood and no one should be made to feel that way. So I think that's a big change from last time around where now the expectation is we're going to be different. We're going to actually try to tip the scales so that things are more even keeled. And I wish that was sort of always the, the, the goal of the Conservative Party, but I'm happy that is the goal now. Now, obviously, you're going to be running in a, a by-election. So if you're elected, you won't need to wait until the next time, the next general election to uh, take your seat in Ottawa. And I'm just curious, if you are successful and you, and you do go to Ottawa, what are the issues you want to champion that, that you'll specifically bring to the table? Because obviously you've had in your career opportunities, I mean, in talk radio to weigh in on anything and everything. But what are the things you want to be a, a real advocate for at the federal level? Well, I mean, it's not a coincidence that I did my speech on housing yesterday mm -hmm. because that is a, a real passion of mine, um, not just because of the obvious need for more housing and people to be able to you know, move out, start a family, but the generational aspect mm -hmm. of it, too. Should I be elected? I'll be one of the youngest people in caucus. I may be the only or one of the only people who rents and doesn't own a home. There's a lot of my life perspective that I'd like to bring to the table that I think represents a large portion of the population that currently doesn't have as much of a voice as I think we deserve. So the generational aspect of things is very important to me as well. Um, but also just to what I was saying about sort of big corporations like traditionally conservatives have been very focused on government overreach and rightfully so. We totally get it. But there is corporate overreach in our society right now, perhaps more than we've had in a long, long time. And I do really want to bring that to the table. Those who are familiar with my work, whether it's my columns in the National Post and the Toronto Sun, maybe people listen to my radio show, they know that I believe in standing up for the average working and middle class man and woman in this country. And whether it's the government or it's corporations not treating those people right, I want to push back. So that's something I really want to bring. And I do think that that's part of a new, fresh voice for conservative politics. Young people, we are bringing a voice to the corporate overreach problem that I don't think conservatives of the past have, have necessarily been concerned about. Jamil Giovanni, thank you very yeah, much. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate Always it. Always a pleasure. That was Jamil Giovanni, former media commentator. Now he is a conservative candidate in Durham, running in the seat vacated by former conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. And it was interesting at the end of that there, which, I, I mean, again, has taken on a bit of a new meaning in the days since we did that interview. He talked about being potentially one of the few or only MPs, if he's elected, who rents. And that's notable because Ariel Kayabaga, who is a liberal member of parliament, she's a bit younger than Jamil, I think she's 32 or 33, uh, she said in an interview this week that she, despite being an MP making like nearly $200,000 a year, cannot afford a home. Now, the Conservatives have mentioned that because I think it is pretty noteworthy if you have Liberals that are saying, hey, uh, even I can't afford to buy a house, so maybe the government needs to get serious about housing. And she accused the Conservatives of mocking her for it, which was actually nowhere near what was happening. The Conservatives were holding her up as, I think, justifiably so, an illustrative example of how bad things are. If someone who makes $200,000 a year cannot afford a house, then how is anyone making $40,000 a year 
going to? How is anyone making 60,000? I mean, you, you even have uh, two people making $80,000 a year, which is putting them on the upper end of middle class. Uh, that's $160,000 household income. So if Ariel Kayabaga is accurate here, that at 190000 a year, you can't buy a house. Two people with that, which will have more costs because there are two of them, uh, perhaps a second car, more groceries, and, and so on. And this is a very real issue. So Trudeau did this announcement on housing yesterday in which he basically re-announced something that had already been announced and hoped that this re-announcement of the original announcement would lead people to think that housing is being uh, taken seriously. And it was a very localized announcement. I'm using the word announce like seven times because the liberals seem to think that just announcing over and over is uh, going to work. And now they've come out today. So I think they realized they stepped in it yesterday. They came out today with another policy proposal, which is that they're going to remove GST from the construction of new rental apartments. So, okay, yay, it's good policy, but uh, talk about just barely scratching the surface of something when the issue is that no one is building to the extent that they need to be building. And this is where you get into what is going to be the defining issue of this generation, what is certainly going to be the defining issue of the next election. And I would also bring up the point here that it's a very difficult one, even if there is a conservative government or a, I mean, heaven forbid, an NDP government, a green government, a PPC government, I mean, if there are any other government that wants to take housing seriously, it's going to be very difficult in four years to turn this around when it is such a deep-seated and I would say multi-pronged problem. So uh, yeah, you can talk about getting rid of the gatekeepers. That's a key part of it. But really, you've got municipalities that I think have the burden of really needing to step up to the plate here. So uh, that is it for this week. We'll be back on Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Mountain with another live edition of The Andrew Lawton Show. And if you can't catch it live, you can catch us in podcast form or archive form on YouTube, uh, sometimes on Facebook, depends on whether you've been blocked or not, thanks to C18. Uh, you can catch us on Rumble and as always at tnc.news. And I just will put in a plug here. I am going to be at True North Nation on October 21st, which is True North's first ever, first ever, live and in-person event. It's going to be in Calgary, and you can come out and hang out with me. Rachel Emanuel will be there, Rupa Subramanya, Harrison Faulkner, plus some other special guests to be announced. That's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope you do come out to join us. You can get the details on that at truenorthevents.ca, truenorthevents.ca, and that is our first ever True North Nation event in Calgary. That's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope to see you there. We'll talk to you on Monday. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.